It's good to be running an anime podcast. We've got a Patreon and a load of lovely subscribers. Everything is rosy. And oh boy, I cannot wait to find out what my first Patreon request is. Ooh, maybe that's it. A Kikun. Hmm, I wonder what that's about. Oh well, no time like the present. Let's start the first episode. Howdy there, partner. What'll you be having? Bleach. Bleach? Do I look like I'm here to clean a fucking toilet? Give me some fucking- First round, Raw Ingredients. Hello, and welcome, ladies, gentlemen, and MBs to Waridesho. I'm Shaden, and it's Patreon request time with Akikan, the only anime created as the result of trying to use a can of Dr. Pepper as a fleshlight. For the blissfully unaware amongst you, Akikan is a romantic comedy ecchi show that I presume was commissioned for Guantanamo Bay, because waterboarding was apparently no longer cutting it as a method of enhanced interrogation. Jokes aside, the labelling of this show as romantic comedy is accurate, if you stick strictly to the term and not the execution thereof, I suppose. But what is the premise, you might ask? Describing the setup of the show without asides or riffs is not the easiest thing in the world, but here is an honest attempt. Kakuru Daichi, a 16-year-old high school student, bemoans his virginity one evening while purchasing a can of melon soda from a vending machine, the kind that are ubiquitous in Japan. Upon drinking it when he returns home, the contents anthropomorphize into essentially a magical girl of the same age as Kakaru, and you can probably guess that quote-unquote wacky hijinks ensue. If you've seen the show and considered that summary of the premise a bit thin given certain other events and characters that enter the fray later on, then I promise you they will be covered, but so far as the elevator pitch goes, that's it. Speaking for myself here, had I heard said pitch in an actual elevator, I'd have prayed for the cables to have been cut and the emergency brakes to mercifully choose that day to fail catastrophically. But evidently someone somewhere liked the pitch enough to finance it with all the money one could expect to be found under your average couch, because to call this show cheap would be a gross over-evaluation, although I'll elaborate on that more later. So, who is ultimately responsible for this atrocity? What is the name of my enemy? I mean... Can you imagine anyone involved in this show doing anything worthwhile before or since? Given watching a Keekin was the equivalent experience to eating a bowl of wasps for breakfast, there's no way I could believe the people who made it had talent or souls for that matter. So, going through my anime list, let's take a look at the studios involved, starting with Brain's Base. They're responsible, or at least involved, in Bakano, Yahari Ori no Session of Comedy Mawachigatsuru, Dorora and Mararu Penguin Drum... Wait, what the fuck? <laughs> okay, okay. Surely that's a blip. <laughs> Very funny. Okay, so... The producers, according to Mal, are half HP Studio, a bunch of nobodies, and they're responsible for work in part or whole on Tengen Top of Gurren Lagan, Love is Hard for Otaku, Fate Apocrypha, Pantheon Stock with Garbell, and... Alright, fess up, who's been fucking with the timeline again? 
Okay, yeah, these studios and their involvement in Akikan versus their involvement in their decidedly better works isn't a one-to-one -one thing. There's plenty of churn in both permanent and freelance staff in anime studios, so inevitably going through Mal would have turned up some connection between bargain bin garbage like Akikan and anything halfway decent. But hey, one thing that is certain is that the voice acting ranges from ear-splittingly shrill to middle-of-the-road indistinctiveness. No surprises there, so I should immediately expect to recognise not one of the seiyuu here, starting with Kakuru being voiced by Jun Fukuyama, who voices Joker in the Persona 5 anime. Oh, fuck me, I don't have enough beer in my beer. Alright, alright, alright. Who else is on this list? Megumi Nakajima. Where have I heard that before? Oh, fucking hell, no, no, no! Okay, okay, okay. I've had a few shots of tequila. I think I'm good. Incidentally, I learned during the break that Jun Fukuyama also voiced Luca in Macross Frontier. So between him and Nakajima, I'm guessing they both spent many, many hours in bars and clubs drinking away their collective memories of working on this abomination. But hey, let's not let all of the voice actors off the hook. Budoku, the Grape Akikan, has a voice that sounds like someone trying to use a dentist drill on a block of concrete. Here's an example. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can you imagine what kind of low-rent, hack-job voice actress would take a role like this? Well, our bargain basement war cry performance is courtesy of none other than... Aoyuki. Aoyuki, who has voiced Hinazaki in Erased, Tsuyu from My Hero Academia, Shusenduji in Fate Grand Order, and Madoka from Madoka Magica, to name a few. This timeline is fucks, I swear. So okay, yes, it's very easy for me to plumb through the individual voice actors' my enemy list credentials and find high-profile works that they've been a part of or even starred in. That's probably true of so many god-awful anime shows that I'd hardly consider Rikikin unique in that respect. But I haven't even yet discussed how this show looks, which is, to say as someone who browsed Newgrounds back at the turn of millennium, this show is actually inferior to the flashworks posted there at the time. It looks butt-fucking-ugly. Like, every frame or cell of the animation was soaked in vinegar and cat piss. There are moments here and there of decent-ish animation with good use of stretches, but at the same time, there are scenes where characters drift flatly across the plane of view like they're straight out of a pop-up book, or perhaps a drifting Fast and Furious style, who can say. The show also makes use of canned animation where, for example, lead Akikan Melon's Hadouken tacks are recycled multiple times, and why yes, I am absolutely going straight to hell for that pun I just made. So despite all of the various talented parties involved, the show looks and sounds like what you get if a razor head drew in the race in a Mountain Dew advert. But hey, looks aren't everything right. By modern standards, the anime of the late 80s and early 90s don't have the same level of fidelity as more recent shows, artistic direction notwithstanding, of course. So we can hardly blame Akikan for not measuring up. I mean, it was only made in 2009. 2009. That was 10 years ago, so I suppose I'm doing this podcast on Akikan's 10th anniversary. Oh, fuck my life. I think this is going to take several rounds to get through. Just bear with me, please, folks. Second round. Steel vs. AL. Akikan is a romantic comedy etchy show. Technically. But it also has a plot. Also technically, I guess. 
A plot arguably isn't strictly necessary for shows like this. I mean, take Miss Kobayashi's Dragon Maid as an example of where the background details of the dragons and what they're up to is just mostly fluff around the actual core comedy. But in their very finite wisdom, the creators of Akikin did indeed decide to give this show a running plotline about the purpose of the titular Akikin, which is the soda waifus and what they get up to in the real world of the show. Except it's a dumb fucking plotline that gets dropped very quickly and is never actually resolved. Which is kind of like watching a boxer decide to open a match by delivering a one-two punch to himself that simultaneously knocks them out and leaves them with half their teeth missing. You see, the whole idea according to Hidehiko Otoya, a character in Akikan who serves as both the government official in charge of the Akikan program and also has a strong argument against the existence of a loving god, the idea according to him is that the Akikans must take part in the Akikan elect, a competition to settle an age-old question that has apparently never been answered before. That question? What material is better for soda cans? Steel or aluminium? Well, because the show doesn't actually bother to answer this in the end, and because I do not abide by laziness, I actually went and looked this up. In terms of raw advantages of one material versus another, aluminium wins easily. It's lighter than steel and does not rust, plus it is more malleable. While steel cans can be treated to prevent rust or corrosion, that comes with its own costs. It's actually kind of surprising how in-depth this stuff goes, at least according to Can Making for Can Fillers by Terence A. Turner, written in 2001 and basically serving as the bible on the issue. Uh, Terry, by the way, if you happen to be listening, mate, then I am so, so sorry for associating your fine industry-grade work on the topic with the lanky streak of piss that is this show. Raw material advantages and properties aside, however, the main reason that I can see for steel being used in Japan versus aluminium is a combination of cost and the state of the aluminium industry in Japan, which according to a 1998 paper I found by Iki Usui, I'm sure I pronounced that wrong and also link in a doobly-doo if you're interested, as of 1998, the production of aluminium inside of Japan was only half a percent of its total demand. And for more recent information, according to the Japanese Aluminium Association, as of 2018, Japan imported approximately close to 2,900,000 metric tons of unraw aluminium, which eclipses their export of the same material at a miserly 21,300 metric tons. Suffice to say, it seems that Japan is heavily dependent on aluminium imports along with a lot of other products and materials in general, so if the costs of aluminium worldwide fluctuate heavily, then suddenly it can become very costly to consider making cans from aluminium versus steel. Now that's about as much detail as I'll go into here on the topic to try and not make this podcast as dry as a camel's arsehole, but yeah, basically aluminium is better than steel for can production, but it's not always economical to use it depending on where you are in the world. So yes, yeah, suck it melon fans, your girl is both cheap and inferior! Jokes and cheap shots aside, I should stress that Akikin never once actually addresses this central question behind the Akikin legs, or even declares a winner by the end one way or the other. Now this is a comedy show, supposedly, so I wouldn't expect the show to suddenly have Kakaru display sudden and profound knowledge of the Japanese canning industry because A, it'd be incredibly fucking boring, and B, that would assume Kakaru actually has a brain as opposed to having the intellect and general pleasantness of a common cockroach. But that just begs the question, why have the Akikin elect even be a thing in the show at all if you're not even going to bother giving a token answer to the question involved in it? I mean, for all that I can research the topic and put on my most condescending, well actually, voice, there's at least one alternative plotline that I can envision for the show that would actually gel with its romantic and etchy elements, I shit you not. How about 
Oh, I don't know. Having the competition be about which Akikin is the most visually appealing. Who has the best design? What about contours? Why does no one ever talk about the fucking contours? <clears throat> Seriously, for all that I personally don't care for Etchy shows, if I were writing one, I'd probably want to try and blend the overarching plot with the actual Etchy elements of competition between the female characters for the clueless burke of a male protagonist. Make it about the aesthetics. Heck, throw in a theme of visual appeal versus flavour as an analogy of looks versus personality. Chuck in a blind taste test gag for God's sake, then call it a day. Even if you wrote this idea on toilet paper with a set of kids' crayons, it'd be superior to the crap Akikin provides for an actual plot, which they still don't bother resolving. But again, it's a comedy etchy show. On the grand scale of things, the plot is just a distraction. What matters is the comedy, and the romance, and the best girl debates. So speaking of which, let's move swiftly on to our next topic. Third round, self-contradiction. It'll probably come as no surprise to you when I tell you that Akikin features a love triangle between Kakaru, Melon, and a classmate of Kakaru's named Najimi. Najimi speaks in the third person, gets high off carbonated drinks because of their gaseous contents, as opposed to the sensible idea of a sugar rush, and she also looks like Ori from the fighting game Undernight in Birth. She also is madly in love with Kakaru for reasons in the story that are hilarious and hilariously awful, and also because Akikin has the creativity and wit of Adam Sandler after he's had a six-pack of Bud Light. I'll come back to Najimi specifically in a bit, but I should elaborate on what I suppose is one of Akikin's thesis statements, at least as Kakaru puts it. The idea is, to paraphrase, that Kakaru wishes it was as easy to find a girlfriend as it is to purchase a can of soda from a vending machine. Now, as much as I do want to dunk this show in a vat of acid, I'm not going to pretend the idea of this isn't a little tempting, speaking as someone who has dealt with loneliness and feelings of inadequacy throughout a lot of their adult life. Of course, Akikin won't treat this concept seriously, but that's fine in of itself because it is a comedy. Indeed, part of the humour comes from Kakaru suddenly being stuck with a fish-out-of-water lady summoned from a soda can, fulfilling his wish for a girlfriend, or at least a female companion, and all of the responsibilities that come with that. The problem, though, and you've probably already spotted this, by the way, is that Najimi, or Najimi if you pronounce it that way, is in love with Kakaru and has been for years. And no, as presented, this love is not something she keeps to herself. It's as apparent as a giant dumpster fire that you're only two feet away from. For all that Kakaru protests about his virginity and his inability to find a girlfriend, Najimi has been openly attracted to him for years. You might say this is part of the comedy of the show, that Kakaru is completely and utterly oblivious to the lady in front of him who apparently doesn't see him as the clown he is, but speaking for myself here, having a protagonist, even in a comedy show, who is utterly insufferable and yet still has two women lusting after him, it isn't amusing, it's just excruciating. So why does Najimi love Kakaru then? What possible reason could there be for her to have an interest in a man who could scientifically be declared as a waste of oxygen? Well, apparently Najimi's family is very wealthy, and this led to her being a target for extortion and kidnapping when she was younger. We see this in a flashback from her, where three goons in ski masks take her captive in class at gunpoint, and... I swear I'm not making this up. I, I promise you I'm not. In the space of a single cut, a much younger Kakaru goes from trying to ineffectually wrestle the handgun out of one of the kidnappers' hands, to having said gun in his own hands, having shot all three of them dead. 
No, I promise I'm not making this shit up. Kakaru, somehow off screen, managed to grab the gun from the kidnapper, an action so implausible that even the creators knew they couldn't actually show it for how ridiculous it is. This isn't for comedy either, I should say, or at least I don't think that's the intent, as the scene is meant to show Kakaru having a dark past, and is presented in a washed out colour palette to sell it as something serious for all the non-relevance it'll ultimately get. But I'll credit the creators for this, it at least did make me laugh my ass off. Um, I mean, is there a term for, like, non-intentional comedy in a comedy show because the actual crafted humour has all the laugh potential of Dale Roadkill? I don't know. I mean, answers on a postcard, I guess, folks. So yeah, Najimi's existence in the show is to serve as one third of a love triangle with Melon and Kakaru, albeit with something else thrown in that I'll discuss in a bit. But I do have to ask, if you're not even going to bother making Kakaru's initial display at never having had a girlfriend actually have any basis in reality, and as a comedic device it's about as useless as a sandpaper condom, why bother at all? Why not have the love triangle be between him and two Akikan characters, maybe one being steel and one being aluminium, so it can tie into the wider plot? Having Najmi be part of the love triangle betrays the disinterest of the show's creators and the original manga car and the entire premise, especially given its ultimate resolution, which is to say, what fucking resolution? Now I could imagine that the manga continues on beyond the show's run and maybe addresses this in more detail, but at the end of the day, the show had a finite run, and maybe should have had the balls to answer that question, but then again it didn't even answer the steel versus aluminium question, so I really shouldn't be surprised. Unfortunately, Najimi's purpose in the show is also for something more sinister and scummy, and there's no being about the bush this one, so let's just move on to covering Akikin's representation and approach with regards to homosexuality, which I'm sure you can all imagine it handles with all the dignity and gravitas of a KKK Grand Wizard doing a vlog on exploitation films. Fourth round, the bitter taste of homophobia. You know, when I was growing up and attending high school, calling someone gay or fag was almost always a slur. Now, not being down with the kids these days, I couldn't tell you whether or not those words are still used as insults by them. But regardless, this kind of homophobic name-calling is, to be polite, childish and immature. Like other insults you might find on the internet like cuck or snowflake, using them also betrays a severe lack of creativity or originality, even if merely as a joke, simply instead just being the reheated TV dinner equivalent of throwing shade at someone. So imagine my stunned surprise to see a Keekin decide to race itself to the bottom by employing that same kind of homophobic wit that idiotic children would use, and also similarly betraying its breathtaking lack of creativity. For a show supposedly about the what if of soda cans turning into hot women and all the craziness that follows from that, it also again betrays the incapability of the creators to actually mine that premise, both for actual humour or drama, and that's despite, and I say this with all seriousness I assure you, that there was potential there for both of those things. But what's worse is how this is not just overt in the text of the show, and in particular Hidehiko Otoya, one of the shittiest, vilest, and tackiest piece of shit characters I've ever had the displeasure of encountering in anime, but also covert with regards to a certain scene's presentation and musical scoring. Let's start with the covert element. Take a listen to this audio from the end of episode 3 of the show. Even if you haven't seen it, you can probably guess the context, but pay particular attention to the music.
発にお目にかかりますオーナー私はスポーツドリンクのアルミ缶エールと申しますこの度はこうして命を吹き込んでくださり誠にありがとうございますな,な,な,な,な,な,なじみのファーストキースdivorced from the other sounds and dialogue in that scene i'd wager you could slot this music straight into the build-up to jason Voorhees approaching two teenagers while they're fucking and it would fit that mood perfectly as it does sound like it's straight out of a slasher flick but that's the context of this scene in akikan as it happens this is when Najimi purchases a can of Yell Sports Drink from a vending machine, and drinking it she summons the Akikan of the same name, who I should know is made of aluminium and ergo will end up fighting Melon later, for all the big fat load of nothing he'll amount to in the show's runtime. And no, I can confirm that Yell, the energy drink Akikan, is not called Bakemono or the like as a joke, because that would have required a drop of imagination from the show's creators, which, like the show's budget, was practically non-existent. But anyways, moving on from that, I should note that when an Akikan is summoned through drinking their respective beverage, they end up kissing the person who summoned them. Yell doesn't seem to mind this, but Najimi closes out the episode by falling to her knees after they part and declaring out loud in her despair that it was her first kiss. Now, the music choice here, combined with the show's first on-screen girl-on-girl kiss, is, how should I put this, very telling, and it's certainly not in a Katy Perry kind of way. Najimi kissing a girl, even one made mostly of water and glucose, is presented with the musical choice as a creepy, menacing thing. I should add, this happens while Najimi is drunk off the carbonation of some other soft drink she'd had earlier that evening, and why yes, it is indeed night time, and why yes, she's all alone in the side street where the vending machine is. To call this entire setup unpleasant would be putting it mildly, and so what? That we have a laugh at Najimi having kissed a girl by accident? Fucking blow me, Akikin. As an aside, if you want to be apologetic and suggest the music and framing is meant to be ominous build-up for the potential fight between Melon and Yell, now the latter has arrived, I would agree, but only insofar as that may have been the intent of the authors of the show, and if so, they failed spectacularly actually doing that, since the entire scene plays out without any callbacks to Melon to signpost to the audience that this spooky scene is related to her now having another Akikin to fight as opposed to what it ultimately ends up being, intended or not, which is to say, homophobic garbage. And if you think that's an isolated thing, and it's just my misinterpretation of under-the-surface elements of the show, well, allow me to point to the show's very, very fucking blatant homophobic elements, starting with the character of Otoya. When we first meet Otoya in his office, he has a gigantic framed poster on his wall that the subs tell me says, I like men and his office is lit like it's part of Nerve's ominous shit division, with him looking like a serial killer when it's just hit murder o'clock. I really could just end my description of Otoya there, to be quite honest, but regrettably there is more. You see, when he bursts into Kakaru's home after Melon is summoned to ostensibly offer up an explanation of the Akikans and the elect thereof, he also tries to sexually assault Kakaru, and it is presented as skin-crawling levels of creepy. Incidentally, this show tries to create comedy both through Kakaru feeling up Melon and Otoya's own attempts to simply cause Kakaru to end up having to point to a doll in a courthouse. Having seen the Love Hina Christmas special and otherwise knowing why I do for osmosis, I am aware that Japan's standards on sex, sexual assault, consent and the like are much looser and weaker than in the West, but if I may be blunt, I could not give less of a shit about cultural standards here. If your best attempts at comedy are to use sexual assault as humour, don't fucking quit your day job. 
Otaya also has several Polaroids of half-naked men, including one individual who looks as young, if not younger than Kakaru, and he also attempts to sexually assault and or rape Gigolo, yes, there is a character named Gigolo in this fucking toxic waste-up of a show. He attempts to do that in the men's bathroom in a later episode, while also wearing a Diamante Speedo. Yes, a Diamante Speedo. I'm not going to bother explaining why this shit is heinous, I mean, that should be obvious. But I should also note in line with what I said at the start of this section about homophobic humour is that it's also incredibly fucking lazy. It takes no effort whatsoever to craft a joke based on homophobia, and given everything I said about how slovenly and half-arsed Akikin is as a show, it honestly doesn't surprise me in the end that this is what was used in place of actually crafting in scripty, genuine humour. Furthermore, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Yurika Kochikaze, a friend of Najimi's who is also deeply in love with her and attempts to murder Kakaru several times by pretending she's Gambit of the X-Men and throwing cards in. Now, while I do approve of any effort to remove such a wank stain of a character from the world, Yurika is essentially to Najimi as Otoya is to Kakaru, i.e. a person who can't spell the word consent and equally doesn't understand the concept. Thankfully, she is not betrayed in the same way as Otoya is, but nonetheless the intent is the same, gay people are spooky and that's funny, ha 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 ha. Oh, I should also note that Gigolo, in the same episode where Yell is introduced, says it's strange for girls to be doing this kind of thing, when referring to Eureka deciding to, I kid you not, confirm that Jimmy's chastity has been protected after also suggesting Kakaru might have raped her. No one comments on this line from Gigolo, nor is it played as part of a joke, instead just leaving the others in the room to wonder how he was there all along, so yeah. Oh, and there's the episode where Melon works at a maid cafe owned by a cross-dressing man. Yeah. To sum up, homophobia in of itself is crass, pathetic, and stupid, but using it for comedy is all of that with an added sprinkling of laser. Its inclusion in a Keekan only gives the show an aura kind of like being soaked in piss, and it betrays the creator's own lack of interest in the show's core premise that arguably should make it stick out. Furthermore, I should remind you that Akikin was made in 2009, which, while not exactly the golden age of progressive thinking and understanding of LGBTQ plus issues and people, it also wasn't the 90s or earlier either, although I suppose given how old and dated the show looks, I guess the creators figured its attitudes should match too. Points for consistency, I suppose, which still puts Akikin score-wise somewhere around minus 10 million, or to put it another way, a steaming pile of horseshit. Fifth round, The Empty Plot. I've talked a fair bit about how Akikin as a show could not care less about its own concepts or even doing anything remotely interesting or creative with it, but I cannot stress enough how apparent this is, so trust me when I tell you as it is that the show's plot comes to a thundering, screeching halt after episode 6, which only then picks up again in episode 11. You could skip from episode 6 to episode 11 without consequence, I assure you. So, cue the music, because here's a list of the plots of episodes 7, 8, and 9. Episode 7, Yell becomes a transfer student. Episode 8, everyone visits a water park. Episode 9, Melon works as a maid cafe. Now, I'm not against slice of life when executed well, as it can be very enjoyable, but when you're creatively bankrupt and you've abandoned the main plot that your show is built upon, why not just go with safe ideas like these? I mean, if you've seen a beach episode in any anime before, you've seen episode 8 for example, and if you think there's any connective tissue between these episodes or any ties into the Akikin Elect plotline, don't be silly. <laughs> I mean, that'd require Akikin to actually be made by some of a muse and a creative spirit as opposed to soulless hacks. But then, there's episode 10, a bleak, dark void of emptiness, 
far more scary and imposing than an actual black hole, consuming all joy and happiness into itself forever and always until the end of time. What, you might wonder, could this episode possibly be about to prompt such a description from me? Well, appropriately, the episode's about fuck all. I am not kidding. Well, okay, I'm kinda kidding. It is about the three Akikans we've met thus far, all doing run-of-the-mill shit in their day-to-day -day lives, including Melon doing laundry and Budico restyling her hair. That's it. The actual human characters don't even appear on screen, only speaking off-screen to their respective Akikans before leaving to do some crap elsewhere. It is, otherwise, approximately 22 minutes of absolutely nothing interesting happening, a complete hands-held-up moment on the part of the show that is officially run out of anything cool or entertaining to do before the finale. The Akikan elects not being resolved I suspect is budgetary, because having more than three Akikans, finale notwithstanding of course, would require more regular voice actresses and presumably other saves to voice each Akikan's owner, which all costs money, never mind the required animation of course. The show's painfully limited budget is apparent in almost every waking second of its tortured runtime, so I'm not surprised that a long series of battles between the various Akikans goes out of the window. But I do then have to ask, if your budget is that tiny, your ability that limited to animate and deliver on the show's overall plot, then either drop the Akikan Alexis a plotline or cut the show down to OVA length. Making a fuck-up with limited resources is, I'm very sorry to say, still a fuck-up, and there is no excuse for an episode so boring and lazy and uninvolving as episode 10 to exist. It moves so slowly, it didn't so much feel as though it took hours for me to watch it, but rather that I felt like I was going back in fucking time. But end it did, eventually, and mercifully. And like the preceding episodes before it, it offered no advancement of the overall plot, nor any real humour. About the only thing I could come close to calling good would be Bidoku's hairbrushing scene, where she displays some shred of her own agency. But her involvement and relevance in the show has been almost non-existent, and she still sounds like sheet glass being fed through a wood chipper, so whatever. The biggest crime these episodes commit though is not that they don't follow through from the first half of the show, where Melon and Yell's continual battles might have felt like it was going somewhere in another version of it, but rather that they provide no build-up, foreshadowing or connection to the show's two-part finale, such that when you start episode 11 you feel like you've just woken up out of a coma after several years, which were the show any worse is exactly what would have happened to me come to think of it. But well, I suppose it's no time like the present, let's actually jump into that finale, if you could call it that. I personally prefer the word train wreck myself. Sixth round, non-ending. To follow on from my previous metaphor and say that episode 11 opens in a way that feels like being involved in a train derailment is an understatement, but without a side, the plot goes like this. We open in Atoya's office, which is on fire and collapsing around him and his assistant Irene, a character whose one running gag is that she prefers being called by her second name. Seems like a Kika's equivalent of Half-Life's resonance cascade has happened, and with the roof collapsing on Atoya, we cut to the title of the episode revealing it will be about the strongest Akikan of them all, as if you needed more evidence that the Akikan elect as an idea was something the staff couldn't give them less of a shit about. Additionally, if you're wondering if any of this was foreshadowed up, as I said before, the answer to that is an emphatic no. If you told me that the creators behind Akikan realised they only had two episodes left and collectively lost their shit because they had no idea how to end the show and decided to make up this sudden inclusion of the most powerful Akikan ever out of thin air, then I would believe you, and without hesitation. This Akikan is later named Miku in the second half of episode 12, so for simplicity's sake I'll just reveal that now and use it going forward. 
Miku you see is a mixed juicer Keekin who looks like Dark Phoenix Jean Grey as reimagined by the people behind Dirty Pear, and her powers allow her to absorb other Keekins whole and then release them later as mind-controlled slaves to do her bidding. What's her overall goal? Why is she devouring other Keekins whole? Beats the hell out of me. The plot goes about as you'd expect. Melon fights a mind-controlled Bidoku, Yell fights Miku head-on and loses before being taken by her. You can see where all this is going. Then the end of the episode rolls up, and despite a good effort from Melon to fight off the fizzy Vimto equivalent of Goza from Ghostbusters, she is similarly taken with Kakaru being left for dead. This is presented as serious business. So naturally, in episode 12, when Kakaru wakes up in hospital, his first reaction is about how badly he needs to piss. Because it's not like, you know, one of the two potential loves of his life basically just had her soul devoured or anything. Yeah, this show has tone problems and wants to try and do real drama about this Cinderella-esque situation Kakaru finds himself in, as we'll learn shortly, while also being witty at the same time. Some shows do pull this off, whereas Akikin succeeds only in posing the same health risks as smoking an entire pack of cigarettes at once. Kakaru, Iron, and Najimi intercept Miku and force her into what I think is a disused quarry, which, if so, I will credit Akikin for what might have been an intentional callback or homage to Super Sentai fights often taking place in such locations, but I'm wagering this was unintentional. Regardless, Kakaru has a plan. Go for the heart. And he calls out to Melon, who is, of course, stuck inside Miku, and through the power of feelings and such, manages to break Melon free of Miku's control. An impressive feat given Kakaru's dialogue with Melon previously was mostly crude sexual humour and using her as a house servant. Clearly, these are very important incentives for Melon to want to come back from being absorbed into Miku, so that she can be stuck with a guy who has been disappointed in both Budoku and Misaki, Budoku's owner, for both being underage, ergo making him a paedophile. Yeah. That's a thing as well, because like the homophobic humour, it's not just crass, but it's also extremely lazy. Anyways, no prizes for guessing that this works. Yell and Badoka are also freed, and they fight off and defeat Miku together in Akikin's miserly attempt to show the trio reconciling. If you're now thinking this is the point where perhaps Kakaru kisses Melon for the first time outside the summoning process and ergo with consent, or even the same happening with Najimi and Yell because she realises that she's actually genuinely interested in women and that her juvenile infatuation with Kakaru was just that, then surprise surprise that doesn't happen, and instead we get Melon and Najimi beating him up, which admittedly is the silver lining to the wet fart that this resolution otherwise is. Otoya also arrives at this point, having inexplicably survived his office burning to the fucking ground, and he then explains for everyone what caused Miku to turn homicidal. Turns out she believes her owner had thrown her away, which I'll tell you now to put a pin that idea for later. But for the moment, Otoya reveals what actually happened was that, and once again, I give you a blood oath that I am not making this shit up, a girl had purchased Miku from a vending machine and was attacked by a cat. Said cat knocks the drink out of the girl's hands and one or two drops of the mixed juice drink land on the cat's tongue, summoning Miku and binding her to it. Yes, fucking really. It wasn't that she was thrown away or disposed of by an ignorant human, but that the most implausible nonsense intervenes and causes her to have a gigantic misunderstanding. Despite various moments between Melon and Kakaru hinting very faintly at the idea of the Akikins being disposable, the show's balls vanish into the ether and it cops out of actually having something interesting to say. 
After all that horse shit wraps up, there are indeed closing scenes with the various Akikans and their owners, and naturally nothing is concluded. Melon and Ajimi are still into Kakaru for some on a holy fucking reason, the Akikan Deluxe is nowhere even close to being decided, and Miku, a threat so deadly that she almost devoured dozens of Akikans alive, is shown the door by having her chase that same cat through the city, leaving as a complete fucking joke. Oh, and by the by, in case you wanted some nightmare fuel, I did neglect to mention this earlier, but the Keekans must replenish their carbonation by drinking the same beverage they originated from. For example, in Melon's case, she must drink melon soda in order to stay alive. I'm not sure if this technically counts as cannibalism or not, so there's your first part of your nightmare fuel, but the second part, if you apply this to Miku, whose owner is a creature without opposable thumbs or a bank account, you could extrapolate that she probably dies within a week of the show's conclusion, unless someone buys new mixed juice for her. Whoops. Well, considering she is the Jean Grey of the show and Jean Grey's purpose was always just to die anyway, I suppose the glove fits. Seventh round, missed opportunities. So in conclusion, the show is a flat, dry, boring, unfunny dog turd. And as you've likely gleaned from what I've been rambling about for the past several minutes, but I am of the opinion that you can make a good show out of any concept no matter how absurd, it's just that the difficulty of doing so increases linearly with the absurdity. So believe me when I say that, for all that I ultimately probably won't have ever truly liked it, Akikan could have been far better than it turned out to be without sacrificing its core concepts. Indeed, while the comparison is probably extremely unfair, if you take a show like Welcome to NHK, which features a similarly useless pleb of a male protagonist, that's the kind of show a Keegan could have been like, incredibly witty but also deeply insightful. And if you think I've gone completely screwy Louie for thinking that, let's revisit that pin I mentioned in the previous section. So here's a question for you. What do you do with a soda can once it's empty? You throw it away of course, I mean, it served its purpose after all. So let's apply that to a Keegan. What, hypothetically, would Kakaru do if Melon's lifespan was limited in a similar fashion? Now I know that assumes a version of Kakaru that isn't an insufferable, sexually deviant piece of shit, but just try and imagine it anyway. What if Kakaru knew of Najimi's affection for him, but hadn't the confidence or the will to act upon it? What if, therefore, Melon's arrival on the scene served to help him build that up? I know that all sounds like I'm very really close to writing actual fanfiction for this accursed show, and I won't deny that there is a lot of arrogance to assume that you know best than the show's creators. But the framework is already half there to develop this into something that could preserve the show's comedic intent while giving it a more serious and earned dramatic edge. Miku's original understanding that her owner threw her away could become an actual event, and that could then be reflected on both seriously and comedically by Melon, Yell, and the others. There's potential here, because to go back to Kakaru's original lamentation about not having a girlfriend, and if you consider Melon conceptually as a waifu, which let's be honest is what the creators intended her as, then we can reach a potential idea the show could have covered that could have actually made it actually good, if not even great. Waifu, as a concept to me at least, reads as a mental construct one creates of a character they encounter in fiction that occupies the role of a significant other. It's a comfortable blanket, because fictional characters are predictable, you always know what they'll say or have said since they're part of an immutable text. Even amongst derivative works like fanfiction, and by derivative I do mean that they just are spin-offs and not necessarily any statement about their quality, but in derivative works, a character's dialogue and actions are still the products of an author who controls those elements and outcomes absolutely. 
Indeed, if you yourself have a waifu, you are creating a derivative work simply from that act, even if you never write a word of it out on paper, since you're placing that character in the headspace of being your reciprocal significant other, which I'd wager was not actually a thing in the original text at all. You are the sole author of your interactions with that mental construct of your waifu, and the sole processor of how additional material featuring them factors into that. Now I should absolutely stress here that I'm not criticising people for having waifus, because I understand that for some people, to varying degrees even, they are a more comfortable proposition than the uncertainty of interacting with actual people that you might otherwise be actually romantically interested in. But whether you have a waifu simply for the aesthetics and because you've not yet met someone you might be attracted to, or because actual interaction with people you have feelings for can be genuinely scary, which, by the way, just to lay my cards on the table, I've felt that innumerable times throughout my life. But I should note, waifus are always transient and temporary, and that's even amongst themselves when you find another character that better fits your tastes and aesthetics and personality. You've probably already guessed where I'm going with this, but it's that temporary nature which I'm tying to the idea of disposability in Akika, and how if Melon's presence as a waifu turned actual person, someone who changes from the safety of simply being a mental construct to a real human being, so the base Hadouken powers notwithstanding, that could have made for genuine drama. Kakaru undergoing the transition of having a waifu conceptually to literally and all that entails, including the point where he has to let Melon go because she served her purpose to him, and the hard goodbye as a result, that could be, as it's called in the industry, the good shit. I also realise I probably just described the plot of Video Girl Eye, but fuck it. So yeah, that long screed is my own understanding of what could have been done with Akikin and how the concept could have been expanded in a way that actually utilises the soda can elements to its fullest without diminishing the comedy, but while actually adding actual drama a la Welcome to NHK which I mentioned earlier. Instead we get homophobia, paedophilia, crude sex puns, a plot written inside a Dutch oven, and animation as flat and lifeless as modern Bruce Willis when he's trying to act. It's, make no mistake, a piece of shit. But that's the fault of the execution and, insane as it sounds, not the concept. Soda cans that turn into women is not an inherently inviolate idea, and had they actually tried even a little, it could have been decent. Time gentlemen, please. Is Akikin the worst anime I've ever seen? Having fought in this, I'm going to say it isn't, but it is in my bottom five of absolute shite that I've seen Japan produce over the years. Mouse is still the worst, although Akikin is close. What's more, I don't really get who Akikin was made for other than soda can enthusiasts, but that's still better than Mouse, which I think was made for sex offenders. I would recommend Akikin to absolutely no one, especially not to anime podcasts as Patreon requests, hint hint. And I haven't covered absolutely every brain-searing moment in the show's run, so trust me when I say that there's more, but it all fits the same creative narrative. A lack of budget spent in the laziest way imaginable to make something that, if it was soda, would be flat, tasteless, and probably fortified with potassium benzoate. Anyways, thank you all very much for listening, and why yes, I am aware that I've pronounced the show's name wrong all this time, and I could not give less of a fuck. But all pain aside, I found it very enjoyable and even interesting to cover a Keekin at the length I have, and I would like to thank Tallulah Bell for requesting initially, since it did give me a lot to think about, which I hope you in turn have at least found entertaining. If you yourself would like to request a show for Doc, Forgelia, or myself to cover, why not consider becoming a $5 patron for Warrior Desho? You'll get access to the request queue, other patron-exclusive content and new releases, Discord access, and other perks to name a few. If you're listening to this elsewhere, please leave us a rating and review as appropriate, as it always helps our discoverability. But until next time, as always, embrace your everyone, to the ends of the Hi universe. There. We're closing.
Who are you talking to? Don't you fucking touch me!